These are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Today, I am blessed to introduce you to Matt Wilkes, a physical therapist and the chief rehabilitation officer and vice president of Sheltering Arms Institute in Richmond, Virginia. Mr. Wilkes shares with us an insider perspective on what it takes to establish a model SCI center and to craft a rehabilitation program that takes into account the many factors that spinal cord injury patients and their families have faced, and how a facility can be family-centered for optimal recovery. I was overjoyed by this interview, which shows how far spinal cord injury rehab has come in just a few years, as well as giving us insight into the excellence that is possible when care and providing care is done so through the lens of the family's needs. Whether you are directly connected to SCI or if you just want to learn more about what collaboration with a family looks like in a rehabilitation facility, as well as how believing in the body's capacity for healing shapes a different experience in rehab, Come and join us in this trauma healing learning focused on a center that believes in what is possible in spinal cord injury. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the blink of an eye nonprofit? And Blink of an Eye is on social media. You can find out more about the Blink of an Eye initiatives, trauma healing, new episodes, and more. Blink of an Eye is servicing spinal cord injury families in the crisis hours and days immediately following injury, when their lives are turned upside down potentially forever. Hear about the Blink of an Eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the Blink of an Eye support teams in any way, fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. If you want to engage with a financial contribution, you can do that too at blinkofaneye.org. Follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and on Facebook at the URL facebook.com slash www.blinkofaneye.org. Links to these platforms will be in the show notes. Welcome to Season 3, Trauma Healing Learning 19, The Ingredients for the Making of a Model SCI Rehabilitation Facility with Matt Wilkes. Hello, Blink of an Eye family. If you tuned in last week, you'll remember that the Blink of an Eye story is delving deep into the ins and outs of spinal cord injury rehab from one family's perspective, including the ramifications of choices 
made for certain physical therapy over others. It felt like we were in a race against the clock to wean him from the ventilator so he could participate in rehabilitation. I didn't know at the time just how complicated his injury was. The aspect of having taken in so much salt water into his lungs, not to mention his being a C2 through C5 burst. I had many doubts and frustrations about the approach our rehabilitation was taking, both to the rehabilitation direction as well as to the lack of communication with our family about those plans and the lack of knowledge imparted to a family about rehab choices. As an outsider to the medical establishment and a newcomer to spinal cord injury, it was very difficult to express my concerns in a way that felt heard. Well, today you are going to meet a man who had a similar experience with his own son. He himself, an established physical therapist, and how many years later he took his experience to shape a new model spinal cord injury center that has the family's experience on the same par as the patients and the staff. Matt Wilkes has helped design the rehabilitation program at Sheltering Arms Institute, a state-of-the-art destination SCI rehabilitation center in Richmond, Virginia, that blends advanced SCI technology, research, and evidence-based clinical care with collaborative approaches with families, believing that to do so creates better outcomes for rehab patients. Mr. Wilkes is both the chief rehabilitation officer and the vice president of Sheltering Arms, and his background as a physical therapist, but more importantly, his own parental experience bedside with the traumatic medical injury of his son, gives him a very detailed view of the needs and considerations that his patients' families might also have. And in this conversation, we dig into the mechanics of spinal cord injury rehab, as well as a global picture of how rehabilitation programs in hospitals and rehab centers might be improved and have the potential to offer extraordinary experiences. We will also hear from Mr. Wilkes about an ingredient in excellent care that often gets passed over, the role of faith in the healing process acknowledged in a hospital and rehab setting. So settle in. Take a deep breath and anticipate the knowledge and wisdom and hopefulness contained in this conversation. Here we go.
I think it might be helpful for listeners to know a little bit about your rehab as the chief rehabilitation officer. What goes into a background to have someone have that role? <laughs> yeah, it's a rather unusual role. So the, uh, the institute that was created here is a joint venture project between the nonprofit Sheltering Arms, which is an old Richmond company. It's a hospital founded around the turn of two centuries ago by a woman and her, her friends to, to provide free care and the joint venture with Virginia Commonwealth University. So the, those two organizations came together to form the new institute, which is a 114-bed state-of-the-art rehabilitation hospital and now eight outpatient clinics. The interesting thing you asked, sort of what goes into uh, creating that and then, and then sort of how my role fits being a specialty rehabilitation hospital, it made sense that there would be someone to focus on the, the particular aspects of rehabilitation it, itself. So I, I think the best way to describe it is over the past about 23 years now, I've been working in the rehab space. I have a variety of different roles, held different positions, worked with different, uh, different disciplines and different service lines, and it really led all here to how do we create a specialty hospital that is not just Virginia didn't need just another hospital. It needed real difference making care. And how do we how do we provide that to the entire community throughout the state and, and, and now the region? So along with my medical and, and nursing colleagues, I think we've been remarkably successful. We've been open now about uh, two and a half years and have served over 5,000 people and really has has been, I think I, I mentioned it, it's a labor of love at, at this point uh, in my career. So I feel very fortunate to be here. It's so beautiful that it's a labor of love and how fortunate that with the various differing disciplines that not only you're putting together, but that you yourself are bringing from your background. Tell us a little bit more about the experiences that you've had, the various disciplines in the rehab space and how they're converging at this moment in time in your labor of love. Sure. One of the things that we've done here, this is really a laboratory. So not only are we providing care to people in need, but we're actually studying the the care. So I've been able to create teams of people one of the teams that we've created here is the clinical science team, and that is comprised of uh, different allied health professions, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, therapeutic recreation, and others that are arranged in, in actually studying and then translating evidence into, into practice. So that team is focused on an area of, uh, of uh, the literature called implementation science. How do we how do we take things out of the literature that we know are best practices that might have been studied in laboratories and how do we apply those in the real world? To my experience prior to the open of, of the hospital, I've worked with allied health professions, uh, also uh, medical psychology uh, and physician practice in a hospital setting, in outpatient settings as well, so community-based uh, care and then was tapped as one of the transitional leaders to actually build and open the new Sheltering Arms Institute in, in June of 2020. So all of that, all of that learning with 
different medical and allied health professions to really help me understand how do, how do these things fit together and what is required to actually make things real. So although the Institute has only been open since 2020, we really have the benefit of almost you know, a decade and a half of really solid work to understand you know, the field of implementation science. We've learned a lot over time. We've, we've, you know, just sort of as a, you know, as we put systems together, we failed a lot and then succeeded, you know, in learning from our own experiences and then from others throughout the country as well. So there's been a lot of generous people across the country who have helped, helped to inform the care that we provide, uh, which is, it's interesting, I'll say, to find a place like the Institute in Central Virginia, it's not a major market city, you know, it's not an Atlanta or a Chicago or a Boston, but we've been successful to create things that are really on par with those first market cities, which for our area and region is very, very important. I, I would say essential to serve the people in, in this area of the East Coast. When I was speaking with Mac McElroy, president of Sheltering Arms, and he is a dear old friend of mine from college days, he shared with me that when he helped us with a referral to the Shepherd Center, a model SCI facility, and there was another family thereafter who then had a friend of their son who also went to the Shepherd Center thereafter, Mac was saying to himself, why do these high school young kids have to go so far away from their homes for this kind of rehab? And he said that Archer's experience really inspired the opening of this amazing facility in central Virginia, but also, as you mentioned, the full region. So we have this gem now in the mid-Atlantic area, and that's really, that's very powerful. Has there been strategy around that or the people whom you're calling to the center or are using the center, the 5,000 whom you've served? Are they from the area? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, happy to do that. So about a third of the patients that we serve come from outside the large Richmond metro area. So beyond central Virginia, about um, uh, 33% of the people that we serve come from from areas farther away. Um, and many of those are coming from out of state. I think, you know, you highlighted, of course, you, you know, and your listeners would know from, you know, your family's experience. If you have to leave an area to receive state-of-the-art care, then it's really important that you do that. But there's a significant cost to that. And it's not just monetary. There's, you know, the relational cost of having to leave a support network, which really can't be underestimated. There's how do you provide continuous care when you have left town and then you know you have to return to town at some point? There's, you know, a sort of a drop off in information. What does the community and the providers in the community know about you and your family at that point? So those, those hardships that we observed in the central Virginia area and the region of people having to leave specifically for spinal cord injury care and brain injury care really prompted us to develop strategies to create something that was so effective that families would feel comfortable trusting us with the care of their of their loved ones. Mm. And so increasingly that's that's what we're seeing. 
we're seeing between uh, about a, a 80 and 100 traumatic spinal cord injury patients with traumatic traumatic spinal cord injury per year here. And then we look at the total number of, of spinal cord injuries we're seeing upwards of uh, about 250 per year. So. The, wow. the, the, and, and those are many of those uh, families and patients would have been leaving the area previously uh, because the, the care that was available in other areas like the Shepherd Center um, or maybe Spalding in Boston or the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, formerly Rehab Institute of Chicago. Those really were the best places to receive rehabilitative care for spinal cord injury and, and brain injury. Yeah. It's a uh, boy. It's going to take us in a, a number of different directions. I I want to comment that you are so insightful to know the relational cost to a family that has to go so far from home, and also that what do providers know? You know about the the child or the the loved one who is in that bed uh, or in that power chair trying to recover from a traumatic spinal cord injury. And it's also one of the reasons why we created our nonprofit, Blink of an Eye, because it's to send almost like a SWAT team, a heal team, to the family right away, wherever they land in the ICU where the injury has taken place. EMS, I'm learning through interviewing people on the podcast, that typically goes through a fire department, through the police. And they'll just go to the first trauma center, which is a level one, typically hospital somewhere, you know, in the state. And for Central Virginia, I mean, what it is now that Sheltering Arms is providing is just so phenomenal. But for the states that border Virginia, people, EMS might send them to other hospitals as we were. And the hospital actually was not equipped, even though they were a level one trauma center, they were not equipped with spinal cord injury expertise. And not to mention being far away from home because so many of the spinal cord injuries themselves happen when people like we are, you know, we're healthy and vibrant and active are on vacation or we're recreating or in sports. And we're oftentimes, therefore, not at home or in our own backyard or at work. And so it's kind of a recipe for disaster on being forced into a situation where you would be far away from home if people didn't, EMS workers didn't know otherwise. And we're just on the cusp of working those partnerships. But we're just just so excited about what's happening in Richmond. And with regard to the study that's underway and the implementation science that you are contributing to about what it is we can learn from our teams on the front end with families in trauma and trauma-informed responses that we want to be able to then give back to the medical profession. And I'd be curious what you might be thinking if our HEAL teams are beginning to collect data. We have a SEAL, a member of a SEAL team working with us on tracking mechanisms for collecting the information, but how it is that we might learn from what you're doing where that study could then be translated uh, and actually our, our practice being translated into a study that then gets translated into a medical practice what that might look like and what you're doing at Sheltering Arms about around those issues. 
Yeah, I think what's really interesting, I mean, there are many interesting things about what you're, what you're uh, doing. Uh, the idea of standardizing and really working something into a standard medical process in many ways is the goal. So there, there are often good things that happen in sort of one-off instances for people or families in many areas of the country. But what's very difficult for us as medical providers to understand is that's not good enough. That's, that's good for one person, but how can we make that care that can be delivered once? How do we make that into a system that can, that can create a predictable result for many? That's really uh, the goal. And so we've been uh, working on that aggressively here. The other thing I would say uh, that strikes me about the, the HEAL team, I know this from my own personal experience with my family, it, it means so much to be known, to be seen by your providers and the care that is delivered is better and more effective. I mean, it's not just the way that it makes us feel. It's, well, I mean, it's, it's part of what makes the care real. It is, I think, I think it's important to recognize that as an active ingredient for the care team to actually know who they're serving. Uh, So as you mentioned, the likes, the preferences, you know, if you've given your history one time, that the providers are aware of, of who you are and what is important to you. What are the things that are working? What are the things that are not working? What are the things that you're frightened about? Particularly, you know, trauma-related care that is, and, and catastrophic care that is extremely important. You know, one of the things our HEAL team is doing is we'll, we'll come in with a, with a blink of an eye, weighted blanket, because we know in spinal cord injury, the crisis days and weeks, the rooms are typically freezing cold because the body is trying to re-regulate itself. And we're bringing a blink of an eye journal because we know how vital it is for families to keep track of the important medical pieces, especially as the medical portfolio of all the things happening to someone so injured begins to really expand. And then also bringing an ABC board so that there can be communication and spinal cord injury best practices, but also telling the families this is how to tell the staff about your loved one. And, you know, put that in the room, whatever, oft times male. So I'll just simply say he doesn't mean that there aren't girls and women who have these catastrophic injuries as well, but they're just much rarer. But to tell the staff over and over how loved he is and he he was gregarious or he's quiet and he was seen as the nutty professor in school. But what about him and about what he, he always wanted to do this or to do that or he's a really great pianist and now he no longer has his arms and hands or he's a really great football player and he can no longer now throw a football but to understand in both of those instances that here's a kid or a young man who obviously knows what it's like to practice and knows what it's like to be at something on the long haul so these aspects of personality that that as you mentioned are so vital and important in ways that do figure in quite dramatically to the quality of care and the very personalized shaping of a care plan, not to mention the intentionality that we now know through quantum physics is as important from a care provider as it can be for someone saying a prayer for someone injured. 
So I, I just, I think you were so right on the money. What does it look like at Sheltering Arms to incorporate as a matter of standardization how it is that providers can know about the patient? What are you putting in place around that? Yeah, rehabilitation in general is geared toward putting a team around a patient and a family, really inviting the patient and family into the team. So one of the things that we have done is we we have a a rounding process, which is is common in in most rehab hospitals that there would be a, you know, some kind of a rounding process. The way we do it is we um, the entire team will spend time physically in the same room with the patient and family to review what is coming up, to hear from the patient and family, what are the things that they want to work on, what are the what are the barriers that they see, what are the things that feel hard or or scary. And that interdisciplinary team with medical psychology, with a chaplain, and then all the other, you know, sort of typical actors are are there for the patient and, and, and the family. The One of the things that we're here, we are extremely fortunate. We have so many resources that, that many other places do not have. Where you might get typical rehab, it'd be unusual to have a medical psychologist involved in, in every case. Um, often they may be available, but they're sort of available by sort of remote consult or, you know, they would come in once a week or something like that. But every every patient here is, has that recreation therapy. So we know people like to do things that are not just physical performance. They like to do things, you know, with their mind, their body that are, are artistic or athletic or diversional and so we have a team of people that are included in that in those in those rounds and then are providing care uh, while people are here one of the things i'm really excited about in addition i mentioned our clinical science team uh, we also have a community engagement team so before someone leaves the hospital essentially as soon as we are meeting people patients and families in our facility we are learning what is important to them and then we are starting to connect them while they're receiving care in the hospital to the many wonderful community resources that exist. And we make those connections in the hospital for a reason. They're much more durable if patients and families have the opportunity to meet people from those organizations that will be helping them or, or providing care before they leave the hospital. That works out much better than on the day of discharge. Again, I can think about my own family's experience, but um, on the day of discharge, when you're leaving the hospital and you're leaving sort of a warm, safe place and you're going out into, you know, then the next place for care or, to, or ideally to home and you're getting, a, you know, just a fire hose of information and included in that packet might be, you should call these people, they might be able to help you. That's not very valuable in that moment because there are so many other basic things to attend to. You're worried about how am I going to get into the house? How am I uh, going to get into the bathroom? What is the bed going to look like? Where does the bed go? Can I navigate the basic food? How is that going to work? So to be able to think about the next level of care or leisure or athletics or something like that is virtually impossible and often would drop off the radar for most people. 
So we make those connections in-house, and then we also track and follow up to make sure that the people that we have the privilege to serve are as connected as they would like to be. Matt, my jaw is dropping about this community engagement. Well, actually, just the entire approach of inviting the patient and families onto the rounding teams bedside. These are just incredible things that that were not happening for us. And having on staff this medical psychologist as well as the chaplain, but not just on consult, but really there, part of the team. And then on the day of discharge, it is a fire hose. And the likelihood of ever making those community connections at any time in the near future are so remote. And I hear in what you've shared that you've mentioned a couple times about your own experience. Can you share, if you're willing, a bit about that? Because it sounds like your own experience has very much shaped what is quite unique about what Sheltering Arms is providing. Yeah, I think that's one of the ways that I feel like God has been good to me and my family. Professionally, I feel much better informed about the general territory of what our patients and our families are dealing with when, you know, I've had the experience of when the wheels come off the bus of life. Uh, So I certainly do not know what it is like to deal with so many of the things that our patients and their families deal with, but I have a general, a general idea. And that has been really helpful for me. And it really has made me much more passionate passionate about delivering exceptional care. And really, we, we joke about this as an executive team, but we're relentless about that. And that, that we put enormous pressure on ourselves to really work to create something that, that does deliver an exceptional result for, for people. So that's how it's worked itself out for me. So in 2015, my, my son, who was eight at the time, was diagnosed with bone cancer. And it, it uh, gives me goosebumps that uh, yeah, just at that yeah. hearing that I'll fast forward and say that he is now 16 and doing very well and does not have cancer, which is remarkable given the, the places that we've been over the last about eight years. It um, is remarkable. I just want to drink that statement in. He is 16 you. doing well without cancer. Yes, really, not a day goes by that I'm not not grateful for that. So when he was eight, he was diagnosed with bone cancer. Bone cancer is is very rare in children, about one in a million. It is even rarer in a child who's eight. So usually it it happens a little bit later into the teens if if it does happen. So essentially, he won the anti lottery. He went from being a, you know, good little athlete at the time playing baseball and soccer and went off the soccer field. And within a a span of about four days, we went from limping on a soccer field for no apparent reason to x-rays, MRIs, biopsy, and then implanting a chemotherapy port into his chest and admitted to the hospital. So in in a span of just a few days, you know, we, if I, if I may, I'll, I'll steal your, you know, the title of your podcast in the blink of an eye, our lives were changed. And I remember 
there's so much I did not understand at the time. And of course, then you start educating yourself so you can help your eight-year-old who can't do that for themselves. I remember a family describing in a a blog that they had put together, they were, you know, sort of ahead of us on the train tracks, that there was the before and then there was the after. And everything after the diagnosis was the after. And so we've been living in the after for eight years. The pediatric cancer community is wonderful and also very hard. There's a lot to say there. I'm very grateful for all of the people who helped us. And there were some very discernible differences in where you got your care, both in survivability and in the case of bone cancer, which is solid uh, tissue tumor called a sarcoma, there's been very little advancement in treatment. So the typical treatment is amputation, depending on where the tumor is. And so we in town, we were given the option of a very high femoral thigh amputation or something called a rotation plasty, which kind of sounds a little Frankensteinish, but you take the foot and you turn it around and attach it to the thigh and just sort of remove the entire middle of the leg. So, and the physician was very confident that, that that's what we needed to do. Of course, that was a lot for us to absorb and the clock is ticking. You only have a little bit of time to make that decision because there's cancer in the body. And in my son's case, his, his uh, tumor was extremely aggressive. So the cell type and the, the way it was growing was very aggressive. So we, we made the decision through some mutual friends to, to go to get care up at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in Manhattan. Wonderful place. Get goosebumps thinking about it. I feel like it's a place where we felt known. And, you know, I have his surgeon is still on speed dial and we text, you know, frequently. The, the care was just really exceptional. It was not perfect, but it was exceptional and, and we felt known. And I was trying to figure out how to continue to work to provide for my family while being out of town. That just that detail alone was so challenging and difficult to try to figure out how to be out of town and sort of set up a you know remote office from a hospital where I could actually do work that I care deeply about and to be present for the teams that I was then leading in the hospital outpatient clinic and physician's clinic to uh, to really care well for the people that we were serving. So that was equally important to me to figure out how to how to do that well the a, a couple of other quick things that that i learned is i i saw you know a place at, at msk they they were focused very single-mindedly on care for people with cancer lots of different types of cancer of course but care for people with cancer and then the study of how do we treat people better mm. So they had, you know, advanced clinical trials that were available, advanced surgical approaches. And the surgical approach at Sloan Kettering, despite the fact that they could only, there was only tissue literally about the thickness of about two or three credit cards at the top of my son's shin that could be saved. They were able to, this sounds like science fiction. And I remember thinking it was at the time for me to hear as a physical therapist, you know, to have very good knowledge of the anatomy and to have the surgeon to tell me that he could save his leg was 
I, I just remember, I remember praying right before Dan Prince is his surgeon, right before Dan came in, I remember praying, Lord, just let us get some good news of some kind. And he was able to, he was able to save his leg. There were many surgeries, many reconstructions, regrowing bones turns out is not that easy, but thanks to MSK, he's cancer free and has two legs and is able to walk and actually made his uh, junior varsity basketball team and is, now, and is now on the swim team. So things that, uh, you know, we once thought he wouldn't be able to walk or to do these things. It was just remarkable. It's just such a glory story, a rags to riches kind of story. But I'm also picking up You've mentioned from just being so grateful how God blessed you in a very crazy way with this experience when the wheels came off your bus and life changed in the blink of an eye, and also how in that very delicate, complicated surgery, how you were praying as well to save your son's leg. What, what's the role of prayer for you, Matt? Oh, that's a deep question. I think what I've come to understand is that there are there are things in life that are hard. And previously I would have been very quick to label those hard things as bad and the things that are comfortable or successful as good. Instead, I've come to really see that all of those moments and circumstances are really from the Lord. And the the reason I can say that with, you know, a bit of a trembling voice, but I can say that is I've seen so much good come from things that have been hard. I would like for that not to be true. You're actually, it's really, it's really tender, you know, to really take that in. It's powerful and it's really true. It's, it's a hard, and so you know this territory too, I can tell it, it's a hard reality. I would like for that not to be true because it would be it would be easier in many ways to hate the hard things and label them as bad and have nothing else to do with them. And in fact, I have seen people do that and that produces bitterness. It's understandable. And that's that, that is how that works itself out for, for some in my family's story, there have been while so hard and I would not certainly wish to do these years over again, it's been a, just immensely difficult for my family and, and for my son in particular. But there really have been so many good blessings, such good time spent with my son, so much learning. And there's a lot of richness that I'm not sure how we would have been able to get that, that any other way. Other thing that has happened is we have had the opportunity to care for others in a way that in the absence of this kind of suffering, we would not have been able to care for people in the same way. Also, we have been cared for by people, which is a very humbling thing to do. I was used to being the guy with the ideas and the energy and that I had a work family really care for me at a time when I needed that, when I didn't have the energy and the ideas and 
they could lift me up so much so much good uh came from all of those things despite the fact that so much of it was so hard and that's really helped to inform the way that i think about about rehabilitation honestly i mean you know we meet people when wheels have come off the bus of life and i wish they had man do i wish they had it when you see someone who has had you know very hard accident or illness you know i think we could agree about this if we could change that for people we would do that yeah um in, in fact i'll tell you another just very quick story i remember walking into the hospital at Sloan Kettering and I met with um, Dr. Prince, my son's surgeon, and he said, hey, Matt, I, I need you to go over and say hi to a family whose son just had surgery like my son's. So we were up there for a, for a checkup about three years after his initial, initial surgery. Uh, still receiving care, still very complicated medically. Uh, but he asked me to go over and see this other family and I walk into the room and i introduced myself and i saw the look on this boy's mother's face and in that moment i would have given everything i own so that she did not have to go through that yeah and in all sincerity i mean it <laughs> yeah you totally get it yeah you wouldn't wish yeah. it on any family. That's that's how hard it that's how hard it is. So I knew what was ahead of them yeah. and what they were what they were dealing with. And I also know it doesn't in the cancer world, you know, the survivability, only about a third of the kids like my son are alive at five years. And so that's all we, that's all at stake. Um, and so then that's, that's what really fuels the, what is the life saving life pre uh, preserving? And then when you think about rehabilitation, the life restoring therapies, what can we do to, to help, to, to be better, to provide care to more people? Some, we were fortunate to be able to figure out a situation through friends, um, and, you know, the McElroy's helped connect us to other friends of theirs in Manhattan. Many people in the central Virginia area and the, in the region don't have those types of connections or resources. And so what about, what about them? So we're here, we're here to provide that, that kind of care for, for rehabilitation and man, what a privilege it is to do that. It is a privilege, isn't it? To, um, to also the sobering, and moving and still very hopeful experience to know that we might not change another family's injury, but we can change the experience that they have moving through the rehab and the grief and the crisis and the family implosions and the confusion and the pinnacle of, of stress and decision-making, that's where we can deliver. And then you couple that with expert care medically, and, and that's moving mountains. And I have found from our experiences, as you 
mentioned, I think, very graciously that there were very discernible differences in different places where you and your son got care. We experienced that as well. And to perhaps be a little bit more blunt, the differences were so stark between people who deeply cared versus people who were just checking the boxes on a protocol list and you're really just another person in a bed and who also held out very little hope for what anything might look like that would be different than the medical prognosis. And the stark difference for even one person on a medical team taking an interest and really caring deeply about the well-being of a patient, not to mention going the extra mile to make sure that something that was available in that facility could then match what was needed for that particularized person. That can make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think we don't find ourselves in these crazy places then after these horrible incidents with our children in the places where we are by accident. Um, it feels very purposeful. And I, I hear that for you and the value of a care team having someone like a Matt Wilkes who's been there. And like the family whom you went to visit asked by Sloan Kettering, can you go visit this other family, you know, three years later for you. And you've been there. That kind of cachet can't be replicated in a training program. No, quite, quite right. Yeah, one of the one of the other things that you know, as you're speaking, I'm sort of I'm constantly evaluating how are we doing and delivering these things to our community. <laughs> one of the things that's very exciting here is the community engagement team that I was mentioning. We have peer mentors who come into the facility really from you know as soon as we meet the you know the people that we're serving people who are who who are down the tracks who have had the same type of thing so we have uh, people who are spinal cord injured and our peer mentors come into the hospital to meet with and care for and I, you know i think one of the things that's really important is to know that you're not alone it feels and there's the time to feel that way certainly and there's you know grief and loss and it's good to know that you're that you're not alone you know and it goes beyond just uh you know friends and family there's there are others in the community who have had similar experiences and that's a really powerful it's a really powerful thing It's actually one of our hashtags for blink of an eye. You're never alone. And it goes in many directions with people who can support you, with friends, you know, the power of just friendship and people who care about you in your own community and neighborhood and you know, school and workplace, but spiritually, that we're never, we're never alone. Whatever one's belief system is, there's this higher divine source for all of us. I want to share something with you about how we can't replace 
someone like a you with your experience with others, but we can have such a complementary team that as we've created the blink of an eye heal team, we're specifically recruiting other families that have gone through these experiences and are at least five years out. And we might, you know, maybe you'll have extraordinary families three years out, but, you know, to give some arm's length so that you're not completely still underwater, because it does take years and years to recalibrate. And then surrounding them with a multidisciplinary team to support the navigators who are supporting the families, but having a person, one of the navigators with the real life experience and one of the other members of the team who's then been trained about the real life experience, not to mention being trauma informed and spinal cord injury informed, together being the team assigned to each family. And we've started serving families and it's very rewarding and a privilege to do so. It's so moving when without saying anything, you just simply introduce yourself and, and say, and, and for me too, in 2015, our son was injured, Asia A, C2, C5 burst. And, and you don't need to say anything else because there's this instant connection in the club, as it's been said many times, you never wanted to be a part of. But it's a beautiful thing, actually, how human beings can connect and really support each other. I, I love everything that you're doing. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the desire to care is is really magical and that providing care one at a time, but then to turn it into something that, you know, can be good for many is, well, it's really special. One of the things, Matt, that the team is bringing to families is spinal cord injury, uh, obviously spinal cord injury expertise, but there's a medical team around the navigators as well, as well as a navigational logistical. Where you are located right now, the nearest model centers are, depending on the age of the person, that one that has an adolescent specialty is here, helping them know on the front end that the hospital where they are might not be the place to be. And so it takes us right into the collaboration that was created a number of years ago for you and what you now have, which is Sheltering Arms Institute, as being one of the 14 model centers that we are telling families about. Can you tell us about what, it, what that means to be a model spinal cord injury facility and what goes into that? Yeah, so the model system designation is created through an organization or a federal agency called NIDLER, and that's quite a mouthful, but it's the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. So the model system is a competitive grants process. So the number of model systems can change from cycle to cycle. And in 2021 was the last cycle. So that was the granting process that the Institute went through. We opened in 2020 and then submitted our application, sort of our credentials to be considered for model systems. And there are now 20 model systems in the U.S. Shelton Arms Institute being one of those for spinal cord injury. Uh, It's also interesting to note 
that we are we also have a brain injury model system designation so that makes the institute one of only four in the u.s that have both brain injury and spinal cord injury model system designation wow just to pause on that so that our listeners can understand that 20 of the model spinal cord injury systems and then a very separate designation being for traumatic brain injury and that sheltering arms has both that is a big deal and can you explain a little bit more so that our listeners can understand really the the gravity and and also the gravitas of such a designation yeah, so the, the fact that it's a competitive process means that Nidler is constantly looking at who are the best of the best in the country at providing this type of care. So in order to be a model system, you have to have a very comprehensive treatment approach, not just within a facility, but to be able to do the types of things that I've been describing previously with our clinical science and community engagement teams and the medical and nursing teams um, to be able to have solutions for people that reach beyond just the hospital. So they need to go out into the community to really provide durable care for people with spinal cord injury or brain injury. The other thing that is baked into the model system designation is rehabilitation research. So as part of the model system and as part of the, the submission, I have to specify a number of research studies which you would then undertake to make sure that we're actually learning more about how to care for people with spinal cord injury so not just being able to provide the care but actually being able to study aspects of that care and advance the science so that the model system as a whole essentially gets smarter at providing care so the information that each model system center develops is shared within the entire model system. The other thing that happens is the ability to track people with spinal cord injury over time. So every individual that is served is then part of the national model system database. And over time, we can track and trend what are the recovery trajectories, what are the best approaches, what is essentially the state of the science. So that model system designation is very significant for, for a facility and for us to be able to have both brain injury and spinal cord injury is, is, is very significant. And I will say one other thing about that. It's particularly significant because often brain injury and spinal cord injury go together. So the, the mechanism of injury can often result in both a brain injury and a spinal cord injury. So being model system with, with, with both is, is, is very important. The, the thing that's also important to, to note about being a part of the model system is that it can't just end there. So as, as significant as that designation is, a facility like ours still has to be able to take the very best evidence and turn it into systematic practice so that we are delivering on the latest, greatest research that's happening and actually getting that to patients and families. This is a shocking statistic that I'm about to tell you, but it takes 17 years on average to take things from the bench or from the laboratory and to get it into mainline practice, 17 years. So we have a, a separate study that one of our teams has been working on for the past six years 
and to to get a particular research into practice. And so that six years is still too long in our opinion. And so we're constantly working to to shrink that that amount of time. Yeah, that 17 years really is shocking, you know, for a, uh, a best practice concept in, in a research setting to become mainstream practice. That, that's a whole generation of, of people, right? So, if you, I mean, you could apply that to any sort of area of medical practice. You could. But in the instance of oncology or spinal cord injury, 17 years is really unacceptable. So how do we, how do we shrink that? A couple of other things to note as well in terms of the the practice that is that you can deliver in a rehabilitation hospital. One of the things that we excel at here that I would say is essential for a state-of-the-art rehabilitation hospital is using tools and advanced rehabilitation technology to accelerate what is possible. So a few examples that I'll give you. We look around the globe for robotic technology, for electrical stimulation technology, virtual reality, body weight support, augmented feedback. Those tools from around the world, we then bring the globe back from Europe or Asia or Israel. We bring those tools back to the Richmond area, put those into systematic practice guidelines, which are like advanced decision-making algorithms. And then our teams know what is more likely effective and they apply those types of therapies for their patients and are able to track and trend how people respond look at our own data and and really understand what are the likelihoods of improvement without just settling for quantity of contact with the provider. Uh, so the, the way that healthcare is constructed in the U.S., it really is predominantly based on quantity of contact. Did you see a physical therapist today? Yes. For how long? For an hour and a half. Good job. Check. Here, what we're thinking about is what is happening? What are the active ingredients and what did we do today to help someone achieve their goals? So that's the relational component. That's the relational component. We So for young men, as you mentioned earlier, who come in after spinal cord injury, it's very common that we're treating those individuals like athletes because, in fact, they they are athletes. So we we put a heart rate monitor on many, many of our patients and our teams are actually training so that they are looking to achieve a particular heart rate target, which is unusual given often that there's some medical complexity. So our medical team is amazing that they're able to, you know, help patients be so well managed. Their health is so, so well managed that the therapies can be very aggressive and more more effective for recovery when that's possible and when it's not compensation. The tools that we have available that are really remarkable. So if someone comes in and they really can't even get out of the bed, we have tools that we can bring right to the bedside and we can work on assisted walking from a completely supine position. We can begin stimulating muscles that can't fire on their own. And then we can begin to verticalize or, you know, help to get them upright and then progressively 
move from that piece of technology to robotic assisted walking. So we have exoskeletons, you know, that can be fitted to, to people. It's not uncommon to see someone with complete traumatic spinal cord injury up walking in an exoskeleton in, uh, in one of our hallways. Wow. And, and the goals may be different depending on what the, what the patient is able to do and what they're, and what frankly they're, they're interested in. But we're looking to really push what is possible. And we don't know until we try. So we often see people who have complete spinal cord injuries and have been told you're never going to walk again. And that still remains a goal of theirs, at least in the near term. And sometimes we see um, we see that there's remarkable spinal cord injury recovery. You know um, what I love about that, too, is with Archer being a AJA4 complete, that Even the experience, if he were to be in an exoskeleton, but even with VR, the quality of well-being that comes from imagining and feeling in your mind what your body is, is in walking, you know, like a good dream. What that also does, I think, in a therapeutic kind of way is perhaps not equally valuable, but definitely carries some, some weight. So, so important. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, that's, that has been wonderful for me to see over the years now, people who could stand for the first time, just the emotional, you know, benefit to realize I'm tall. (laughs) Yeah, I've been in a chair, but it's actually pleasurable to stand, to see young kids who for the first time could stand. And I remember uh, one young man who was able to stand on Mother's Day and hug his mom and how meaningful that was to be able to, you know, to do that from a standing position or to be able to take steps, even if it's more of a neuroprosthetic, to be able to take steps in a, in a robotic uh, system that feels good to be able to see yourself moving through space. And then there's a lot of derivative positives as well, like better muscle function, bone strength, bowel and bladder function, things that are just immensely valuable. And so here we proceed on the what is possible and let's see, let's see what's possible. Then there's a variety of care that's obviously very, very necessary and can be equally valuable and equally pleasurable. So we have advanced seating and positioning, you know, not just the presence of wheelchairs, but really a team of people who are experts in designing and customizing the very best, most functional uh, wheelchairs and devices so that people can go and do the things that they like to do in the community and really restoring you know, hope and possibility and, you know, yes, these things are hard and there's much that's, that's possible. I'm wondering about something that we faced in the rehabilitation world, right up, you know, your alley as a physical therapist. When someone is not able to take part in the traditional, if there's even such a word as traditional rehab for a spinal cord injured patient, because they're still on a ventilator and not able to breathe, and the number one goal of the injured boy is that he wants to breathe on his own, 
what kind of physical therapy at a place like Sheltering Arms could be tailored in this, what you were talking before, really fine-tuned, you know, for each person. What might a physical therapy rehab regime look like for that patient who wants to get off the ventilator so that he could then take part in the other kinds of things that are offered at a place like Sheltering Arms? Yeah, great question. And those are some of the most complicated issues that people face. So we put uh, quite a lot of resources around us. We have uh, full-time respiratory therapists. We are a facility that takes ventilator-dependent patients. That is not common among all rehab hospitals, just simply the, the, the complexities of that, having a, you know, such a well-trained nursing and medical team and, and respiratory therapy team, pulmonology as well, is, um, is complicated to maintain. That's something that's very important around here is to make sure that we're addressing those needs. You're asking about the rehabilitation. The fascinating thing here is there really aren't limits for when we see someone who is dependent on a ventilator to breathe, we're immediately assessing what is what is possible here. That's just a means of, of breathing, but we're about, you know, uh, can, can we sit? Can we stand? You know, what is the muscle function like? What types of technology are still possible to apply? So not uncommon to see, I was just up on uh, our, we have a, we have uh, four specialty units here. One is uh, spinal cord injury and complex care. And the, the unit is named after an individual. So I was up on our, our uh, Dallas Disbro Ability Center unit and saw uh, a man who was dependent on a ventilator walking down the hall uh, with uh, the therapist using you know some supportive technology. So the, it really is a very customized approach to what what are your goals, and then the medical team is working on how can we is there the possibility to wean off of this vent? Is that uh, is that a, a safe, realistic goal? We have a uh, we have a trach team as well who is uh, that team is an interdisciplinary team uh, speech therapy actually plays a real fundamental role there or can we look at if the ventilator can be removed then how can the tracheostomy be be removed as well is that uh, possible um, to do trials essentially to progressively work in a direction of being able to breathe through a normal airway so we, we actually actually looked at one of the studies uh, that we just published internally the other day, and of the people that come in with tracheostomies, 93% of them leave without. Mm. 93%. That was amazing to me. So our, Congra- congratulations. Our, that's yeah, a, well, that's I mean, very, very meaningful for any family, or in particular for the patient who's on a trach. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's always, anytime we're talking about catastrophic care, there's always the qualifier that there are some very complicated situations. And obviously not every result is, you know, like you, would, you and I were talking earlier is, you know, hundred percent as we would like to like to see it. But again, the approach here is let's find out what's possible. And we we're so fortunate here to have such amazing resources. It's very uncommon to have you know, for a rehabilitation hospital to have a trade team, medical psychology, 
respiratory therapy and pulmonology thinking about you know how to address those issues in a rehabilitation it is it's, it's very very unique not many places in the country can can provide that type of care so what, what a delight it is to be able to see what's possible and a delight for us to learn more about it so we can tell the families whom we work with as well it's very exciting I, you know i'm wondering is there rehab that could be not the rehab of can we sit or can we stand if someone is on a vent or they've got chest tubes and they're, you know, and they're being suctioned, let's say, every 20 minutes to get mucus out of the recesses of their lungs. But is there actually some physical rehab that could happen to build the interstitial muscles or things that could actually help lift a diaphragm? And could that be part of a rehab program? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah. Thank you for kind of expanding our view of, of what a rehabilitation program looks like. Yeah. So our respiratory therapists and physical therapists and nurses really work in concert to figure out how to improve the quality of muscle activity for supported breathing. Often secretions can be challenging to manage as well. So the, the teams develop an individualized strategy, whether it you know, maybe deep suctioning, or it could be postural therapy for appropriate drainage. Those things are all considered in the rehabilitation program. The other, the other thing as well, um, there's a lot to talk about here, of course, but the other thing as well is how do we provide people control when they may not have much motor function? How can they control um, the environment around them? We have um, in every patient room, uh, we have a, a large screen with access to a variety of educational videos and the electronic health record, real-time display of their schedule during the day so that they can interact really fully with the medical and therapeutic teams to get information and to provide information. So a lot of adaptive equipment and then augmented environmental equipment as well. It's so exciting because families, as you know, when you and I had our children and and this kind of blink of an eye moment, we didn't have those kinds of things. And still very few facilities do. So the fact that Sheltering Arms is on the cutting edge of this, providing that access that's not just having to ask and wait and fill out lots of release forms and maybe never get them until you're actually discharged, which is pretty much a standard uh, MO for hospitals across the country, but it, it's right there. It's it's your record. It's your portal. And here's the schedule. And to be able to also be educated at the same time with those videos, it's it's so exciting, Matt, and what you have helped shape and are continuing to shape from your own life experience. It's just been a privilege to to speak to you. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to say in closing. Perhaps it's uh, any advice you would offer to a family in spinal cord injury crisis? Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate learning more about what you are doing and just the ways in which you're caring for the community. I, I always hesitate to give advice. I don't know what it is like to uh, deal with a spinal cord injury or to care for someone who has had a spinal cord injury as part of my family. The thing I would say, though, that I think is in common with you know, my experience professionally and, and personally is a reminder that you're not alone, that in, in dark days, it is perfectly okay to hold those things as hard 
and to look for beauty in the midst of that. Uh, that takes a little bit of discipline. And I think by having others around you and remembering that you're not alone, it allows you to lift your eyes just enough to be able to see that the maker of all things is, is present in all of those moments. And without ascribing too much purpose to any of those hard moments or trying to figure out exactly why, for me, that's certainly been elusive. It's, it's enough to know that there, there is beauty in, in the hard stuff. And uh, sometimes we have to wait for it. But yeah, lift your eyes and remember you're not alone. Thank you. It's so beautiful. It's a, it's a key, actually, to integration, to live with both sides of that coin, the tragedy and the beauty, and to know that they can exist, actually, side by side, because they're both always there, right? Any moment, there can be breakthroughs and there can be tragedy. And it's our weaving it together. and. We don't have to go back and understand or make sense of every single thing. It's just the awareness and the recognition that they're both there and how we then make sense of that. And that's so beautiful. I can't thank you enough and for your leadership. They're so lucky to have you as one of the senior directors on the executive team there. Can't thank you enough. Matt Wilkes. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Mr. Wilkes, for your insights and for the work you do to intentionally and carefully design an SCI rehabilitation program that can create more effective, kinder, and more trauma-informed care for those in recovery from severe injuries. It is inspiring to shift into a broader view of what rehabilitation can be. And I hope that you, our listeners, take away some nuggets of wisdom that can be useful in your life, either now or in the future. Because the hard truth about traumatic injuries, such as spinal cord injury, is that there's really no knowing when or how they will happen, as they have the potential of happening to any body, vibrant, healthy, and active. The other truth is that they also have the potential of extraordinary outcomes that we can't imagine, but we can anticipate as we approach spinal cord injury with an open mind, cutting-edge SCI knowledge, and hearts that believe what is possible. I hope you are more informed about what is possible. Model SCI facilities like Sheltering Arms Institute and the other 19 model SCI facilities in the United States are part of the information that blink-of-an-eye nonprofit navigators share with SCI families in the first hours and days of crisis. If you learned something today, or if you have some insights of your own to share, please reach out to me 
on Facebook, Instagram, or by email at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with a friend who might gain something as well. You can also support this podcast directly by becoming a patron at Patreon. All those links are in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 19, Boot Camp Rehab. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye Podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you or someone you know looking for that next step in your career? Are you interested in mediation, conflict resolution, or facilitation? For over 29 years, Baltimore Mediation has been a leader in the dispute resolution and conflict transformation field, training professional mediators and leaders in methods of conflict resolution and transformation from a relational approach. Trainings with Baltimore Mediation will give you the knowledge and skills to promote quality dialogue and informed decision-making between multiple parties involved in conflict, whether in the workplace, family system, court system, or daily life. Their trainings sell out, and if you act now, you can secure one of the few spots open for the upcoming training, a 20-hour advanced conflict transformation and mediation skills training, with a focus on family conflicts and parenting and trauma. Find out more and register on their website at www.baltimoremediation.com.